Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, steezy.digital and realnurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Jacob Vanderslice. Jacob, thanks for being with us. Good to be on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, why don't you start off by telling our listeners who you are, where you're from? I'm a real estate investor and entrepreneur based out of Denver. I'm from Denver, actually a suburb of Northwestern Denver called Arvada. Uh, we primarily focus on self-storage. Uh, we own 35 storage facilities throughout the Midwest and Southeast, a little bit in Denver. I hope to buy more this year. Got started doing single family fix and flips about uh, 15 years ago. Did some adaptive reuse retail along the way, some development projects, and, and kind of landed on self-storage about six years ago. And it's evolved to be our our main line of business. Awesome. Yeah, self-storage is a very interesting one and uh, really excited to dive into everything that you're doing today in real estate. But what was your first exposure to real estate? Like when you first realized the power of it, was it a book? Was it a mentor? Was it a, you know, your, your dad or mom's friend as a child? Like what was that first story like? It was a mentor. It's a, it's a guy named John Dennis. And uh, he is the, I'm not going to get political by any means, but he is one of the lone Republicans in San Francisco. Nice. And he, he runs against uh, Nancy Pelosi often and loses, uh, as you can imagine. But uh, he's been a real estate entrepreneur for most of his career. And he's uh, the son-in-law of my dad's good buddy. So I met him for the first time on a ski lift in the early 2000s. And uh, he had a cool place in Breckenridge. And he's on at the time, kind of one of those janky Windows mobile phones, you know, with like a, a stylus pen and a kind of a touch screen doesn't work very well. Yeah. And he's closing deals on the ski lift. Uh, he was talking <laughs> about like a settlement statement with a title company or something and a wire transfer. And he hangs up the phone and went skiing some more. And I was like, man, I want to be in real estate. I want to be an entrepreneur. So that was my first kind of exposure to it. And I did my first deal when I was a career firefighter. I bought a little duplex in Denver with a buddy of mine from college. And uh, we fixed it up on our days off. I'd get on there, you know, three days a week and lay tile and do drywall and all kinds of stuff, rented it out, held on to it. And that was that was my first real estate deal. So we sold that years later. We should have hung on to it and did a bunch after that. But uh yeah, that was my that was probably we bought that in about 2005. So that was my first entrance into the uh, real estate investment world. Got it. And then from 2005, we can easily look back and see that the recession happened right after that. So did you go into real estate all in after that and experience a lot of the turmoil from the, the recession? What was your experience with that? I did. And I got beat up pretty badly. And uh, people ask like, how you get into real estate? How do you get started? Well, you do deals and you're probably going to make some mistakes. 
And mm-hmm. as hard as those years were, I learned so much and I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I was in my early mid twenties, jumped in head first, had no financial background whatsoever. I was a history major, atmospheric science minor and a, and a pilot for fun. Didn't know how to do a spreadsheet or run a financial model or calculate a cap rate. So I learned a lot just by doing and frankly, by failing. And as we came out of the financial crisis, I had learned so much and I saw the new opportunity that was out there. Just the deviation from the mean in real estate values, as you probably remember, was extraordinary. So we cleaned it up in the following years, just buying at heavy discounts and rehabbing and putting deals back in the market. But um, those were tough years for a lot of us in the business. And a lot of us in the business haven't seen a downturn either, right? Guys that got in in 2010, 11, you know, there, was some, there was some heartache, obviously, with COVID. But if you bought a deal in 2010 or 11, it's probably been pretty hard to screw it up. Right. Yeah. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And seems like getting in around 2005 with you know, no backing, but diving in head first and then needing to figure it out and stick with it through the Great Recession, right? The, the biggest economic downturn in, in our lifetime. I mean, that must have set you up for that later success that you've experienced in the real estate industry. And I'm really glad to, to hear that. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to see someone like you from the outside in, hear podcasts with you speaking on it and think, oh man, like look at this guy, super successful. You know, it seems like it all just was, was pretty linear and pretty easy. But as we know, as entrepreneurs, the path from A to B is never a straight line. It's always this crazy squiggled line that we just stuck with it and figured it out. So yeah, uh, and you gotta, you gotta make your own decisions and not trust what the media tells you or the government. I remember saving an article Ben Bernanke was quoted and it was from 2007. I saved the link to it and I look it up every couple of years and read it. And the headline that he was quoted saying in 2007 is housing is headed for a soft landing. And uh, he was incorrect. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's interesting. So through that process, I mean, there was definitely some, some hard times I would imagine. And even after that, I mean, growing to where you are today, what would you say was the single most important action that you took on a daily basis that attributed most to your success? I would say consistent processes and systems. So having a methodology when you underwrite a property that you don't deviate from, not stretching on assumptions, that's not really a daily thing I do. I guess um, daily habits, let me first of all say my daily habits lately are not great. We've got two boys that are three and two. Our two-year-old wakes up at three in the morning sometimes. He's up for two hours and he wakes up at six again. So the morning workouts sometimes fall by the wayside. But when when I get to the office in the morning, one of the first things I do is respond to emails and do tasks that I don't want to do that day. So get those all out of the way, get the, get the hard stuff out in the morning. And then I usually reserve when I'm not in meetings or doing whatever else. Um, afternoons are usually kind of deeper dive thinking tasks, like analyzing a property or writing up a pitch deck or analyzing a financial statement. And another really important thing I do on a daily basis is I block my calendar pretty efficiently. So a lot of folks that we work with um, book calls with us to talk kind of like we booked on your podcasting link. And when I first started using that link to schedule calls with people, I thought it was going to come across like, um, oh, I'm such a badass. You have to use a link to schedule a call with me, <laughs> right? And it would come off the wrong way. And it turns out people loved it. You you avoid you know, leaving someone a voicemail and they call you back here in a meeting and 
they leave you a voicemail, you avoid the time zone conversion, not that that arithmetic is too hard in the continental US, but you avoid the email back and forth on time zones. So if I have my calendar blocked, I'm typically not on the phone or, or on a Zoom call. And using those blocked periods every day consistently has been really effective for me. Yeah, I could not agree with that more. I, in the last five years, have uh, had my own marketing agency. And and prior to Zoom being widely accepted and used in schools, churches, business, and everywhere after COVID, way prior to that, I was actually living abroad and doing Zoom meetings with clients internationally and using automated calendar links to do time zone conversion. And, you know, we were using that early and promoting it. I mean, I remember one time I was across San Diego County from a potential client and he's like trying to line up this in-person meeting, which I mean, during traffic, maybe two hours without traffic, an hour drive each way. I'm like, Hey, do you want to just do a zoom? <laughs> you know, And uh, it really has sped up the velocity of deal flow, not letting things slip through the cracks and a uh, big believer in it for sure. So yeah, I probably did, I don't know, five or 10 zoom calls in my life before COVID. And now I've got multiple calls a day. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You connect yeah. with people. A lot of our investors I've never met before in person, you know, we're all over the country, but uh, I know what they look like and what they sound like. And you know, what, what their library looks like in the background. Yeah. It's right. going to be a tool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, blocking and tackling seems to be that, that entrepreneur habit you mentioned on a daily basis really helps. And then you also mentioned eating the frog, that, that concept of doing the thing that you don't want to do the most first thing in the morning and getting it done. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's super important. So n- now you mentioned, you know, you've, gone through different phases with real estate and you're focused now on self-storage. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, some of the projects that you're working on or funding right now and, and just dive into that a little deeper. It's definitely an asset class I'm very interested in because I've spent most of my time on multifamily. Uh, But I went to an investor conference in January and one of the top guys was telling all the benefits of self-storage. And I'm like, man, that sounds like a great asset class. Yeah, it's been one of the three darlings, I think, the last couple of years, those three being multifamily, uh, self-storage, of course, and industrial. I think those have been really kind of the hotter asset classes. Um, they've just been defensible and durable and repeatable. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we got into the business in about 2015, and we started off with some ground-up development projects. And we had we had studied storage for a long time. We we knew that it was recession-resistant. It's historically performed pretty well in, in downturns and, and good times as well. So as part of a a general partnership, we were the minority GP in a bunch of development projects here in Denver with some kind of high net worth guys that backed us. So we built those. We're actually selling those now. They're under contract to sell, I should say. And uh, they went pretty well and we kind of kept going. So we evolved to doing single asset syndications and storage. And then during this whole time period, we were outsourcing our management to the national REITs. Now, they know what they're doing, of course, and they dazzle you with their algorithms and their marketing machine. And after the honeymoon is over, you eventually realize that a third party doesn't care about your deal as much as you do. So we formed our own management platform about four years ago and slowly started taking these facilities back from the REITs and self-managing them and then self-managing all the stuff we bought after. So we're an owner operator. We manage our entire portfolio. We're very hands-on. So yeah, we did that about four years ago. We were doing syndications and we did our first storage fund that we launched in 19 and we closed that fund in August of 20. And uh, believe me, we were panicked just like the entire world was in, in March of 20. We're like, man, is this, 
is the economy going to exist, right? I mean, do we stop buying deals? What do we do differently? And after scratching our heads and thinking about it a lot, we said, well, let's just keep plowing forward. Let's keep buying deals, but we got to really be more defensible. And uh, it worked out well. And then we launched our most recent storage fund in January of 21. And we deployed about $100 million last year in total cost, about $40 million in equity and $60 million in bank debt. And we've unofficially closed that fund. And we're launching several new funds. We have one fund coming up. It's more growth focused and one that's more income focused. So an income example might be we buy an existing storage facility that's 75% occupied, doesn't have a website, rents, rents are below market. And we run it up to maybe 85 or 90% and hang on to it and sell when appropriate. A growth deal might be we buy an empty storage facility that's new uh, with no income, but it's nice. Let me lease it up and stabilize it. Or we buy an existing facility and we build an expansion next to it. So that's what you have coming up in the pipeline. Um, but it's been a good industry. And uh, we've had record NOI growth and revenue growth, just like a lot of operators have. And when there's a disruption, which we've certainly been through, um, self-storage tends to benefit. Interesting. And when you say disruption, you mean something like COVID? Yeah. And I'm as tired as you are talking about COVID, but, you know, it's still a data point. When people start to move and they climb up and down the economic ladder, they get jobs, they lose jobs, they get married, divorced, really life changes are demand drivers for storage. And obviously we've had a lot of life change changes in the world the last couple of years. Yeah, no, makes total sense. And, you know, being in the real estate marketing world long enough, I have gotten past the just copywriting and ad creative to the backend data aspect of real estate marketing. And those life event indicators are, are always very interesting to me. You know, there, I went to a marketing conference years ago and one of the talks was, it was just actually a breakout. It wasn't a keynote talk, but they were saying how Aston Martin had identified through an ethnography study that the number one reason why people buy Aston Martins was not the fact that James Bond drives them in James Bond movies, which is what like everyone thinks. The number one reason is the sound, the sound in Aston Martin makes. Hmm. And so they were able to combine video creative that focused on the sound of an Aston Martin with a data set, an audience that had the net worth to be able to afford one and that had also shown interest through some type of indicator that they may or may not be interested in purchasing an Aston Martin in the next six months. And they basically, every dealership that implemented this marketing campaign doubled sales <laughs> within a quarter. So wow. uh, combining, wow. yeah, combining data with marketing, it, it just takes it to the next level. So when you talk about life events, my first thought is, oh, how can I get those data sets and then market the self-storage message to them at the right time? So right. that, that's just how right. my mind works now after, after going through and, and seeing these things and seeing these results. It's really interesting. So where do you think the industry is heading? You know, you mentioned how everyone's tired of talking about COVID. You didn't know what was going to happen, but now that everyone is is so fatigued with this thing and even if i feel even if the government said hey guys we're shutting back down everyone would be like um no we're not <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're all over it yeah we're, we're like nope yeah. nope yeah not doing that yeah so with that being said like you know there's conflict in eastern europe and that's going on that's affecting the stock market and and purchasing decisions right now in, in the united states and 
you know, whether, whatever your opinion is on that, I, we don't have to get into, but I'm just curious looking forward now, I, I feel like no one could really look past the short term when we were in the midst of COVID, but now that we're kind of through it, you know, what are your like five, 10 year projections? Where do you think things are going with the uh, real estate industry, self-storage? You, you can take that where you want. Well, when I make predictions, I'm wrong, but I'll tell you the things we're, we're looking for and that we're kind of concerned about. One thing that we're that we're seeing consistently are buyers acquiring storage facilities and other asset classes for that matter at cap rates that appear to be untenable. Like, how are you buying this deal at this price and putting debt on it and realizing any kind of cash flow? So I think a lot of operators out there are making really aggressive financial projections to kind of not lie to themselves, but convince themselves it's going to be a deal. So we're going to buy this deal at a three cap. We're going to double our NOI within three years. We're going to get up to a six cap. We're going to sell it at a four cap. That might happen. And if you made those uh, projections two years ago, you might have hit those numbers. But just the premium that this asset class is commanding right now is concerning for us. Um, our, Our deal flow has really suffered because of that too. So Q1 of last year, and you and I are talking here at the end of March, 2022, Q1 of last year, we bought about $30 million worth of deals. And Q1 is now over for this year. We haven't bought a single deal yet. Our first acquisition of the year is going to be mid to late April next month. So deal flow has been tough. And one of the reasons it's been tough, we haven't changed our underwriting parameters and we're, we're missing deals by millions of dollars. Just guys mm-hmm. that are, again, I think are making aggressive assumptions. So it'll be interesting to see as these acquisitions that were closed at what I think is a very high price, it'll be interesting to see how these matriculate through the system in the next three to five years. The other thing we're up against too, which we're all very familiar with are rising interest rates. And we've seen substantial rises, even in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the commercial mortgage-backed security market, but a bank will originate a loan and they'll securitize the loan and sell it on the secondary market. And the loan terms are really favorable. But if you if you have a problem, there's not really anybody to talk to. There's a lot of covenants you have to meet. But CMBS rates, we just did a big refi in our fund one portfolio. And this was about two months ago. Uh, we got a 4% fixed rate for 10 years, full term interest only. That same loan today would be about 4.8%. Wow. And on a on a loan amount that's tens of millions of dollars, that's a massive cash flow delta. So it'll be interesting to see how cap rates are affected by this rising rate environment. And so far, so far we're not seeing cap rates increase, but this rising rate environment is still fairly fresh. But eventually they have to go up because people's cost of capital is increasing and they can't get the same yield they could before at three and a half percent rates as they can with four and a half or five. So rising rates is kind of a concern. The compression in cap rates is a concern. And of course, another big thing we all talk about is inflation. I think in an inflationary environment, it's a good strategy to try to control hard assets that produce cash flow with a long-term fixed cost of capital, specifically in self-storage, our leases are month to month. So we can push through rate increases on a monthly basis as inflation takes off and our customer base will probably digest those rate increases. While we have a long-term fixed cost of capital on our debt, uh, the other risk, you're getting more revenue, but your operating expenses are increasing, right? You're paying Mm -hmm. more on your payroll, more on your utilities and your vendors, your snow removal contracts, your landscaping contracts. So we'll, we'll see how that all comes together. But, uh, 
our underwriting approach is the same as it was last year, and that's conservative, and that's definitely costing us some deals right now. But uh, Got it. I'm, I'm concerned about the real estate market as a whole, but I just don't see the writing on the wall as to what's going to cause a massive correction like we went through in 2008. So I've been rambling for a moment, but I'm going to ramble for one moment. Let's go to residential housing, which I've done a lot of over the years. In Denver, January to January, the market's up 21%. And it felt inflated a year ago, as I'm sure it does in Huntington Beach and everywhere else you operate. How long is that rate of appreciation sustainable, right? How much, I mean, can you go up another 21% year on year this year? Eventually, it's just unaffordable. But the catalyst that causes depreciation in the residential market typically is a lot of new inventory. New inventory is not coming. We're behind on home building. People aren't selling their homes because if they want to stay in the same neighborhood, they'll get a premium on the way out, but pay a premium going back in. And they especially probably aren't going to want to sell now because they were paying a three or three and a half on their mortgage rate. Now, if they sell and buy a new property, they're paying four and a half or whatever the number is. So I think continued constriction in the housing market is going to be here for a while. And um, we're always worried about a correction, but we just we just don't see the catalyst that's going to cause that anytime soon. Yep, I agree. The neighbor next door might say, oh, housing's at its peak. You talk to anyone who actually is in the industry and knows the inventory numbers and knows how far you are underbuilt, there's no indicator that says, oh, yes, there will be a correction soon. I want to go back to your underwriting, if that's all right, if we can dive in a little bit deeper. And one of the things I heard at this investor conference, the IIREC conference in uh, January in Santa Monica, excellent. A lot of the best ever speakers that were at best ever were also at IIREC. And some of them were talking about, yes, inflation, interest, all the hot topics. But one of them said, if you look at a multifamily pro forma and you just factor in that the cash sitting on the sidelines being eaten away by inflation as opposed to being in real estate and experiencing asset appreciation, if you factor that into the pro forma or the underwriting, purchasing a low cap rate deal and not doing any renovations actually ends up being profitable. So I thought that was a really interesting concept. And I'm curious if, especially with these extremely high inflation rates compared to historic inflation rates that we're experiencing today, um, are you factoring that into underwriting? Are you thinking about that? So we're typically modeling, a model generally looks like we'll buy a deal that's inefficiently managed. So we'll have pretty aggressive NOI growth in the first year or two. And then our revenue growth normalizes at between three to 4% a year. And that's obviously well below inflation. We've been considering tweaking that number, increasing it a little bit. But one of the self-fulfilling prophecies of being a real estate entrepreneur is you can make the model tell you whatever you want it to, right? Yes. The model will never lie to you. You'll just lie to yourself. And if the deal doesn't work, oh, just lower the exit cap or grow the revenue by 15% more in year two, or show a year three refi and return to capital and an IRR jump. So we're, we're certainly considering the notion that maybe we're missing out on deal flow because we're underwriting revenue growth assumptions. It could be light, especially given this inflationary environment. But the thing that we're most concerned about is not so much the revenue side of it, but when it comes time to sell these things, we're typically holding deals for five to 10 years, somewhere in that range, at least on our, on our modeling. Where will cap rates be if interest rates keep doing what they're doing, right? If you're being conservative today and you're saying, I'm going to carry a 6% cap rate exit, 
And today that deal's worth a you know four and a half stabilized. You, you, you're being conservative, right? But will cap rates kind of be similar five to 10 years down the road? And the answer is probably not. They're going to be higher or lower. But I think that cap rate exit is another reason why we're missing out on some uh, some deals out there. But uh, yeah, we're, we're looking at the revenue growth assumptions in our models. That probably deserves to be gunched up a little bit. But again, you have to believe it and then you have to execute on it. Very true. Yeah. Some of the interesting aspects of that conference that I found were talks about you know factoring in inflation and then the concept of negative real rates, which I love this concept. I mean, even if interest rates go from three and a half to 5%, but inflation's at seven, we're still at negative 2% real rate, right? Yep. And so the concept was deploy as much capital as you can while they're giving you essentially free money. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. I've heard a few uh, podcasts with fairly celebrated economists. And I, I mentioned this phrase earlier, but uh, their advice is control all the hard assets you possibly can get a long-term fixed rate, even if it's higher than it was last year and go. And that's what we're trying to do. And there's a lot that goes into that. Obviously, we're not just buying anything to go buy it. Of course. Um, But uh, I think my definition of wealth is not net worth. It's it's repeatable, durable, recurring revenue streams. And real estate offers that if if you balance your portfolio appropriately. And if you use debt responsibly. Leverage doesn't make a bad deal good, but leverage will make a good deal great. Mm, that's a great quote. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, you know, is there any process that you go through or any questions you ask yourself to get back on track? After I stop zoning out, reading the news on my web browser for 10 or 15 minutes, if I'm just unfocused and I'm just like, I don't want to this next, I got a meeting in 45 minutes. I got a task I have to do that's going to take me an hour and a half. I don't want to start the task. What do I do? I'll do a bunch of little tasks, but I'll also journal. Um, I use day one as my journaling app. And I've been journaling in fits and starts since I was in college. And um, even if it's only a couple of sentences, it captures your thoughts at that moment. And and it's really, I think the value of journaling is dumping some thoughts, not literally, but onto paper. Um, But I think what's more valuable about journaling is looking back at what you wrote down, even a week later. It's really cool to look back a year later and see where your mindset was. So if Mm -hmm. I'm finding myself checking out, I'll journal for 10 or 15 minutes and then kind of get back on track. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I joined a mastermind a couple years ago and I've gone through fits and starts with journaling as well. I feel like when I join masterminds or go to personal development conferences so many times, it circles back onto journaling, reflection and planning. (laughs) So uh, this one sure enough, circle back on that and uh, talks about weekly journaling and then doing monthlies and being able to then reflect back on it. So if you do it properly, at the end of each month, you have four or five weekly journals. And it's really interesting to look back at those and answer, look at the answers to the questions like, what were the seven to 10 most valuable activities I did this week, right? Like income producing activities. What were my my learning lessons and, and things that I could have done better or corrected? And so you look back and you reflect on it and then you plan ahead for the next 40 days on your monthly. And it's amazing to see the progress that you're able to, the insights you're able to create from looking back and actually reading through what you wrote down three weeks ago as a mistake. And then maybe you 
look forward and you're like, oh man, I was about to repeat that mistake or I was setting myself up to be in that same situation. I can correct it now. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not not sure what you use, but uh, if if everyone listening, Evernote, I used Evernote quite a bit too. And I ended up migrating my, I'm a voracious note taker and I went over to my Mac notes app, which is almost as good, but not quite, but specifically for journaling, I use an app called day one. And if you're not already journaling, you should try that out. It's, it syncs with your, you know, just like everything does syncs with all your devices, but it timestamps it gives you like a weather stamp, which is kind of cool. You look back, Oh, it was 30 degrees last week when I wrote and now it's 70 because we're in Denver in the spring. Right. But day one, good app. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've heard of a couple of them. I too used Evernote a lot in the past and I've started to migrate away from it. I have a ton, I have like a thousand notes on my Mac notes app in just one of the folders. So I feel like things can get a little bit lost in there. I heard of one recently that I haven't checked out yet, but it's called Notion. And uh, one of my entrepreneur friends suggested it. He said it kind of reads your notes and creates uh, insights. It can like link different topics that are, or different notes that are similar on a similar topic in a cool way. So I am also interested in this one called Remarkable. Have you seen the Remarkable tablet where it's, it says feels like paper? Because I love the feeling of writing on paper, but who wants to have a paper journal yes. <laughs> in 2022? Yes. Um, and I have the Apple um, Apple Pencil, like the Apple II. It's, it's incredible. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Have you had any experience with the Remarkable journal? No, I haven't looked at that. My issue with paper and writing, I've got two issues. One is it's paper, right? You leave it at the office. You can't remember. My other issue is I can type a lot faster than I can write. So that's why I typically default to a keyboard. I I was using my uh, Apple Pencil for several months to take notes um, on my iPad and it was valuable and it's cool. You know, it's just feels like you're thinking more when you're writing versus typing, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was just too slow for me. (laughs) So I went back to a keyboard. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And sometimes when I'm brainstorming, I'll go back to the Apple Pencil. When I really just, I don't even have the idea you know, conceived yet. I really need to create it. I'll be sketching and, and scrolling and zooming and, and doing my Apple Pencil thing. But to your point, I mean, when I'm journaling, I just type it. It's more searchable. It's faster. And, yep. and uh, yep. yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life or career? Um, really curious if there's any on the on the self storage side. But I'll just let you take that question, however you want to take it. Well, I regrettably am not a good business book reader. I have a hard time getting through them. I've read I've read a lot of the main ones, but um, I'm a pretty voracious consumer of historic nonfiction. And I've, I've mentioned this book on a few podcasts, so I got to find a new one. The book is called In the Kingdom of Ice, and it's about early turn of the century polar exploration. They thought that if they went far enough north, the snow would melt and they could go over the top of the globe to get to Asia. And they obviously found out that didn't work. And the survival story these guys went through, it's its kind of like the Shackleton story to a degree. I was going to say it's like Shackleton, yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of like Shackleton. But this book, the prose is beautiful. Um, and it just kind of, when you look at what they went through, I mean, these guys, a bunch of them walked, uh, they finally made it to Siberia. And they walked a thousand miles to the nearest town to try to save their buddies they left behind. And just imagine that it's, you know, hundred plus years ago, your gear is not good. And it just kind of puts any hard day that you have in perspective, like, Oh, today was bad because we didn't get this deal. Well, uh, I wasn't freezing and eating the leather off my shoes near the North pole. Right. So that's a really good one. 
Yeah, I, I was I was so moved by it. I, I bought copies from our entire team at the office, and they actually read it and they liked it. So that's one to check out if you want a deviation from the real estate business books. What's the title of it? In the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton right. Sides. Yeah, that's right. Good book. Good book. Awesome. Well, is there a question that I should have asked you, or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? No, I don't think so. One thing I mention often, people listen to these podcasts, I think, just to get ideas on how to run their life better, how to invest in real estate better. And if you're out there listening and you want to get in the business and you haven't pulled the trigger yet, the easiest thing in the world to do is nothing, right? It's really easy to sit there and wait for the perfect deal and wait for the perfect opportunity. And especially in this market, there's no perfect deal. So all I'll say is uh, find something that makes sense and take a risk. And that's that's what I did 15 years ago. And it hurt for a couple of years, uh, as we talked about earlier. Uh, but that's how you learn. That's how you grow. And that's how you get exposed to a new line of business. Great piece of advice. I just finished a, a book that talked about something similar. It's like, you don't want to be the guy that has all the access, all the masterminds that you've joined all the online courses you've purchased and haven't watched and you know you uh, get to the end of this book and you take no action right and unfortunately it's it's most people that they if they even take the leap to invest in personal development and better themselves which already is a huge separator but most of them don't complete the courses don't then take the action and experience the success so i totally agree with you there got to dive in got to get your feet wet got to take a risk and then you'll learn. So really appreciate having you on today. You know, with that being said, how can listeners contact you? Maybe someone's interested in, you know, being a part of this upcoming fund, um, you know, being a part of a syndication for self-storage. Uh, how can listeners contact you? Yeah, they can email me, uh, Jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Go to our website, vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice. Any of those work. Awesome. Jacob Vanderslice, everyone. Really appreciate having you on and just having a discussion about entrepreneurship, you know, self-storage, the asset class you're focusing on now, but your whole real estate career. Uh, I think we touched on a couple of insights in the like the planning and, and blocking and journaling area that would help anyone, not even people that are just interested in real estate investment. So I uh, really appreciate the talk today and, and for having you on. Thank you. I enjoy it, Jeffrey. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free Ultimate Real Estate Goal Setting Framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.